You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. So tonight I'm going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, Authority, the Word of God, and transformation. Um, Now, for most people, when you hear the word authority, many many of you just start to have bile already coming up and you want to spit. Uh, and for, for me, the word authority was never a very nice word um, because I was accustomed to bucking up against it from a young age uh, and, and always have, which is the reason why I've had a hard time in uh, any organization, specifically as a kid. I, I would rebel against any kind of authority, and it's largely from my upbringing, having a, a dad sort of uh, take the hiatus and be out of the picture and uh, having a mom raise four kids on her own and most of the time, it was my older siblings raising me, but uh, most of us, when we think the word authority, we, we usually either have a positive image in our mind or a really negative one, and that's because there's been so much misuse and abuse of authority. Um, throughout history, we've seen that. Um, you, ever, you ever hear the, the phrase, absolute authority corrupts absolutely, or absolute power corrupts absolutely? Um, and that's been many of our experiences. Um, and we don't even know, as far as authority goes, what authority we should trust. Um, do we trust the authority of the government and what they tell us is authoritative? Do we trust the church? Do we trust our schools? Uh, on, and whose authority are we supposed to govern our lives by? And our own moral compass and that authority? Um, and so I, as, as believers and as the church, we actually do have an authority, and his name is Jesus the Christ. It's, he's the one who's been given all authority on heaven and earth. And so for those of us who claim belief in Christ, we've submitted our lives to his authority. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the times when we think authority in church even, we often think of a top-down structure where you're supposed to submit to your leaders and anything they say, you're supposed to absolutely submit to it without questioning. And, and I'm not of that persuasion. Matter of fact, I think that authority, according to Christ, is upside down. And he talks about if you want to be a leader, what does that look like? You become the kind of person that washes feet and serves and submits. Um, and, and that is a, a totally different form of leadership than, and, and authority that we've ever seen. The world has never seen that kind of authority. You want to get a really good picture of what uh, Jesus' authority looks like? Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew 5 through 7. Um, that is an absolutely beautiful picture of how Jesus took the world's idea of authority and flipped it upside down on its head. You know, those of you who want to become great, you become a servant. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is it's both personal and it's a big picture thing. Uh, we're living in a day where, where, I mean, everything is being questioned. And whose authority we're supposed to trust is completely confusing for most of us. Um, I mean, you just think of uh, different terms and how those things have changed. The very idea of family and marriage and, um, I mean, we've redefined in this country and in most of the world that's followed our, our lead in this, uh, what the definition of marriage should be. We've redefined it. We've redefined even the very definition of what it means to be male and female. Um, something that's sort of been an understood thing in every culture and every society throughout all of human history. The definition of marriage has, has always, I mean, I mean, granted, it's, it, yeah, I'm going to go there tonight. Uh, it's always been between a male and a female. Um, you know, in some cultures, it might have been a male and several females. Like, they did practice polygamy or a, a female and several males. But, but there was no questioning of whether or not marriage was between a man and a woman. Today, that's being questioned uh, at large. And the church itself is following the culture, not the culture following the church. And, and, and I, that's just one of many things. And the, the sort of rhetoric you hear these days is like, hey, you know, grow up. The church needs to catch up with society. Like, that's the kind of rhetoric. That's the kind of talk that's happening. Um, and I'm, I'm leery of anybody who says, like, hey, this is where the culture's moving and you need to get with it. Uh, and the reason I'm leery of that is because every bloodbath has started with that kind of terminology. Um, and I think Nikita Khrushchev said something very similar. Do you know who he was? How many of you know who he was? He was one of Stalin's big guys. Uh, he, he talked about how this is where the culture was going. And when he was talking about where the culture was going, he was talking about communism. Um, and, and 
<laughs> look at their history and the bloodbath that resulted from that kind of thinking. But that's what they thought. They thought the world is progressing and this is where we're going. Now, the world's going to tell you all kinds of things about what progress looks like. And again, I'd be very leery of any of it. Uh, and as believers, we're not looking at the world and its progress. We're looking at what Jesus says progress really looks like. And, and to him, progress looks like lives transformed, where people who used to be you know, dict dictatorial leaders become servants and lovers. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of mentioning all of this. And, and here's the crazy thing. Uh, we're watching this happen, quite literally. I mean, I'm just going to read one passage of Scripture. If you go to Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. Sorry, not Second Timothy. Go to, sorry, Second Timothy chapter 4. Go there first. I'm going to read verse 1 through 8. It's a large little chunk of Scripture, but... Now, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and dead. Now, who is the final authority? Who is the one who's going to be judge over everything? It says, and uh, he will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So preach the message. Be ready, whether it's convenient or not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction. For there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, they will follow their own desires and they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. They will turn away from hearing truth, but on the other hand, they will turn aside to myths. You, however, be self-controlled in all things, endure hardship, do an evangelist's work, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as an offering, and the time for me to depart is at hand. I have competed well, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to me on that day, and not only, only to me, but also to all who have set their affection on his appearing. Um... I don't know a time that's, I mean, maybe, I'm not a historian, so I'm not the best, you know, uh, I'm not the authority on this part of history. But, but in my mind, when it says acquiring teachers that suit their desires, I think our ability to do that today is more uh, possible because of this thing right here. Like, never before have you been able to get access to information and acquire for yourself teachings that suit your own desires. Um, as, as a pastor, I get people coming to me with questions, uh, and I found very often um, many people will come to you to get answers to questions uh, that fit their own desires. And when you're not telling them what they want to hear, then they will go and find another pastor who will. And I'm seeing this, I mean, it is, it is prevalent in our community right now. They will acquire for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. Um, I think many of our desires and affections, I say our, but I mean people in general, the desires and affections that they have have become the gods they worship. Now, let me just put it this way. Think, think of it this way. If, if you can fill in the blank with anything Fill in this particular statement. Fill in the blank of this statement. With anything, then you found your idol. I will not be happy unless I have. Fill in the blank. Or I will not be happy unless I do. Fill in the blank. Any blank that you can fill in there, I will not be happy if or unless, that has become your idol. Um, for me growing up, I thought I would never be happy unless I'm married. And so what would happen was I would, I would do everything I could to obtain this one thing. And I found myself constantly sabotaging my life because that person could never be my God. Does that make sense? When you put all of your happiness on another person, they will suffocate under the weight of what you've just placed on them because none of us were ever meant to be one another's saviors. None of us were ever meant to be someone else's God. We have a Savior, and we have a God, and He's perfectly capable of upholding us. 
and um, fulfilling our desires. But I'm telling you that this has become our new God. It's whatever our desire and our affection is that's not Jesus. Does that make sense? So let me make sense of all of this. Um, John says this crazy thing. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And nothing came into being without God. Like this, this, so, and then he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst, amongst us. So God has no problem with identifying himself with the Scriptures and the words he preaches. So if all authority has been handed to Christ... And the, and the primary means by which God exercises his authority is through this, then this will be the means by which the church is able to, to be transformed uh, by God's authority. Okay, everything I just said was really convoluted and confusing. Let me, let me try to, I, this is why I should stick with my notes. If I just read from this, it'd probably sound better. Um, Let me just back up for a second. A long time ago, I, um, I used to read this psalm. It says, Psalm 107.20, he sent his word and he healed them and delivered them from destruction. It's a cool psalm. Uh, we see Jesus fulfill this when he comes up to the centurion and he, he, or the centurion's servant. I think this is in Luke 7. Let me just find out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anyway, this guy, he, his, his, his servant is, is sick. And so he, Jesus comes to the centurion, and he says, what do you want from me? He says, I want you to, to heal my servant. He says, all right, I'll come with you. And the centurion stops him. He says, no, 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 you don't even need to come with me. I, I, I'm a man in authority, and I'm under someone's authority, and I have authority myself. I tell one person to do this, and he does it. All you need to do is just say the word, and it will be done. So, so what's crazy to me is that this centurion understood what authority looked like. And his understanding of authority also allowed him to have faith for his servant to be made well. And Jesus, this only time, I mean, one of the few times you see this, says he marveled at the man's faith. That he hadn't seen faith like that anywhere. Not even amongst his own Israelites. Those who were supposed to believe and have faith. He didn't even see that kind of faith amongst them. And so he just says the word, and the, and the man, uh, his servant, is at home and healed instantly. So I used to pray this. I said, God, I want, I want this to be true in my life, that, that your word, you can literally send your word and bring healing to somebody. And uh, so I, I remember I was, I was about to go do a conference with my mentor in, in Fargo, North Dakota, and I was praying, let your word be so strong in me that just the very speaking a word of knowledge somebody would get healed in their seats. I wouldn't even have to pray for them. So here I am. I get up uh, in Fargo, and I, I look at a lady over on the left side of the church, and I said, um, ma'am, I feel, I, I said, do you have problems with your eyesight? She says, no, I wear glasses. <laughs> or she said, no, I wear contacts, I think is what it was. And I said, uh, okay, well, would you like to not have to wear contacts anymore? Uh, because I feel like Jesus wants to heal you. I said, she said, yeah, sure. So I told her to come up to me afterwards and let's pray. Well, she never came up to me that night. The next day, she comes up to me uh, with this other woman. Well, this other lady, they begin to start, they, they're very energetic as they're telling me what happened. And uh, I never got a chance to pray with her. But she says, when you were talking to me, this lady was on the opposite side of the church. And when you said the words, I feel like Jesus wants to heal you, something happened to her over there. And so then she begins to finish the story. She says, yeah, I was sitting on the other side of the church, and um, when you said, I feel like Jesus wants to heal you, I felt some, someone, it was like somebody took a, a bucket of like hot honey and just poured it over my head, and it began to, this hot liquid thing just started to ooze over my face. And she said, two years ago, I was in a car crash, and I got a concussion. And ever since that time, I, I've seen doubled. So like, you know, when you read the, uh, the word upper room, you would see upper room and then upper room right above it. So whenever she was worshiping, she'd see two lines of the exact same thing. Uh, whenever she'd drive, she'd see a stop sign, one uh, superimposed over the other. 
But when I said the words, I feel like Jesus wants to heal you, she was on the opposite side of the church and was completely healed in that moment. Psalm 107.20, he sent his word and healed them. He delivered them from destruction. I know that, that the word of God is both authoritative and powerful, and that it actually has the ability to transform our lives. In Romans 12.1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, I don't care what the world has to say. It is not the final authority. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewal of our minds. Changing the way we think. Then you will know what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many of you want to know what God's will is for your life? Okay, it all starts with changing the way you think. Now, we grew up in a world that tells us how to think. Oh, gosh, there's so much to this, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do the best I can not to go down somewhere that's going to be too controversial for us. There's stuff that I have to say that you are not ready to hear. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I, one of these days I'm going to do my you've heard it said sermon where I, I point out all the things that you've heard it said and I quote our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and then I quote the scripture right next to it. Because you're going to find that a lot of what our country and our world says is ours by right and by nature is not what the scriptures say. I swear. Just go, go compare some of the statements that Jesus says. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Go read Matthew 5 through 7. Because he's going to tell you things that do not line up with what you have been taught. Anyway, how, do we how are we transformed? There's an authoritative word of God. It literally helps transform our minds. How, how do I know this? Check this out. God has left us with weapons. Do you know what they are? Look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 3 through 5. It says, For though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for the tearing down of strongholds. We tear down arguments and every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. There's a lot in there. How many of you know what a stronghold is? Okay, Paul just told this church that God, through Christ, has given us a weapon of warfare. And that weapon is meant to tear down strongholds. What are strongholds? Strongholds are things that go up against the knowledge of God. So, for instance, I will not be happy unless I get that 60-inch Samsung flat-screen TV. It's a way of thinking. Anything that sort of raised itself up and says, I will not be happy unless I have. So for me, a stronghold of my mind, my dad abandoned my family. At age four, my mom is raising us. My dad's not paying child support. Uh, I, my mom's raising four kids. Then my dad marries another woman who had six kids, begins to raise her kids, and then they have two more all the time not paying child support from my family. Do you know what stronghold of the mind took place in my life the day that happened? The day I knew, like, here's the thought that came into my head. Dad has replaced us with another family. So the enemy begins to come in, and he's building up this stronghold. Think of a fortress, Something strong and mighty that's coming up against the knowledge of God. Here's the thought that was planted in my head. You are not worthy of sticking around for. 
you are not worthy of loving. Now, from that day forward, the enemy begins to reinforce and rebuild and fortify that fortress that takes place in my mind. To the point that into my adult life, anytime I would get close to somebody else, the closer I got, the more I would begin to freak out. Because in my head, I thought if they really got to know me, they won't stick around. They'll find out that I'm really not worth loving. And so I was doing everything I could to control the world around me because I was terrified of that thought, that stronghold in my mind, playing out truthfully. And I actually self-sabotaged every relationship because of it. I don't know why I'm preaching to you guys. Like, I, it's like, I'm going to come back over here. You need to hear this too. Here's the crazy thing. God has actually given us an ability to tear down strongholds. Things that take place in our mind that are raised up. It's a thought pattern, a systemized way of thinking that has become so reinforced that it's raised up against what God says is true. We're watching it happen on a cultural, worldwide level. When it comes to what God says about marriage, when it comes to what God says about sexuality, when it comes to what God says about sex and gender, there is a stronghold that's not just taking place on an individual basis, it's pervasive. It's a cultural stronghold. So how do we come up against that? Again, being ready, whether it's convenient or not, knowing what the, what the actual scriptures have to say about those things. Uh, sometime in the new year, if I can get more access to this building, I want to do like a Friday night. Let's, here's what the world says, here's what the scripture says. And talk about all kinds of issues like gender, sexuality, uh, uh, patriotism, um, violence. I mean, you name it. Any big hot-button topic, I want to talk about those things. And what does the scripture actually teach about those things? The things that like, I'm going to call that evening what they can't teach you on Sunday. Sound like a good evening? So, so for me, how, how does this actually play out? Okay, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed through the renewal of your mind. Well, how do you, how do you begin to, to renew your mind? Here's a, a little thought for you. You cannot take a thought captive that you do not uh, believe exists or you're not aware exists. Does that make sense? Can you take something captive if you don't even think it's there? Now, here's what happens with most of us when it comes to our thinking is most of us are not aware of all the thoughts that play out in our head. We're not aware of the strongholds. You see, not only these strongholds are they so fortified, they've also made themselves invisible to the point that these strongholds that take place in most of us are subconscious. And like it or not, if you're in this world, on some level, the enemy has come to create a stronghold in your life. None of you were born free from this. If you're in this world, then this world has been set up to make you fail. It's against you. How do I know this? Because the scriptures teach us in 1 John that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So on some level, this entire world is set up to, to literally rob, kill, steal, and destroy. So here's, here's what the cognitive therapist will teach you. And I've got something, I've got a leg up on the cognitive therapists out there. You know why? Because I actually have an authority that tells me what my worth is. You see, when you go to cognitive therapy and they're telling you, like, hey, every person has inherent worth, well, how do they know that's true? You see, we've got a leg up because we actually have the word of God, which is the final authority. So let me give you a little process here. This is where I told you I was going to get technical. Some of you may want to come up to the front if you can't see this, so I'm just... I'm going to read it out loud, but if you can't see, you can come take a picture later. Oh, awesome. That's kind of cool. So here's, here's how things play out. Uh, I'm not thinking how to explain this. Everything starts with a thought. And out of those thoughts, we feel. That's right, men. 
Did you hear that? You have feelings. More than just laughter and anger. There are other emotions inside of you that you have done everything you can to pretend like you don't have. And out of those feelings, we behave. So for me, I already told you, at the very core of who I was, I thought I was not worth loving. Can you guys see that? It's hard to see, isn't it? It's because it's like a blue light with a blue marker. Uh, it's the best I got. If you want to scoot up, you can come on up. No one's going to fault you for making a little ruckus while you're getting up here. All right. So for me, here's how to play it. I'd be in a relationship. I would find myself feeling anxious. Anxiety is another word for fear. Why was I feeling that way? Well, I texted my girlfriend, and she didn't text me back. It had only been five minutes, but she didn't text me back. So underlying this anxiety was a thought. The problem is, again, we're not always aware of what we're thinking, are we? But here's what I was thinking. She doesn't love me anymore. Do you see how that produces an anxiety and a fear? Now, he, see, here's the thing. This is a conscious thought, right? This is sort of what's playing out. Do you know underneath this is a subconscious thought, something beneath the surface? Underneath this thought, she doesn't love me anymore, is that belief, that stronghold of the mind. And it says, you are not worthy of love. So what did, I, what did I used to do? Well, then I would text. What are you doing? Why, why aren't you texting back? Or then I would call, right? Out of those feelings, we behave. Because we don't like certain feelings. So we do whatever we can to get those feelings to go away. And so when panic starts to set in, how many of you know that it's never a good idea to act out of your panic? How many of us have sabotaged all kinds of things because we were acting out of our panic? So here's the process of getting free. It's a twofold uh, tool that I'm going to give you. I love that it says that the word of God is like, uh, well, no, let me back up. It says, oh gosh, I can't remember it now. Let me find it for you. Um, Hebrews something. <laughs> Hebrews coffee. Why can't I find it? Yeah, 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. Here it is. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. There's two edges to the sword. Okay, here's what they are. One is for tearing down the stronghold. The other is for building up with truth. Okay, when you take a thought captive, it has to be re replaced with something else. So for me... What needed to be torn down, the stronghold that needed to be torn down was this idea that I was not worth loving. But in order for that thing to stay torn down, it has to be replaced with something stronger. The truth is that I'm worth loving. Do you know how I know? Because God sacrificed the blood of his son. A being of infinite worth was sacrificed for me which tells you that according to God, I have infinite worth. Greater, has lo no, greater love has no man than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friends. The blood of Jesus was shed on my behalf, which tells you that I was worth loving. I was worth the blood of, of, of the, the Son of God, which again tells you I am worth loving and I, am worth, I have infinite worth to God. Joshua, when he, when he is supposed to lead the Israelites into the promised land, he's told by God, says, do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night 
so that you will be careful to do what is written in it. Now, doing something is a behavior, right? The best behaviors, like positive behaviors, uh, that's not how you spell that, that's pot. Positive behavior started with a thought that was good. Do not let the book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do what is written in it. Then you will be successful. Now we're talking about the leader of Israel. How does God want him to know that he's going to be successful? Where did it start for this leader? It started right there with meditating on the truth. Now, my process for getting free of my own rejection and abandonment by the way, that was my wife who just walked out. I love the irony in that. Uh, I'm not worried about her leaving me. She may not want to listen to my sermon, but I'm not worried about her leaving me. I'm married today. I don't have that fear of abandonment. But it was a process. It wasn't something that just got zapped away. I'll tell you, one of the biggest obstacles for me getting free of my own fear of rejection and abandonment was uh, actually all the miracles I'd seen. I know that sounds ironic, right? You would think that when you see miracles that you have faith for anything, right? Not. I literally seen deaf ears open up. I'd seen flat feet change shape right in front of my eyes. Torn tendons reattached. I mean, literally... I've seen things happen with my own eyes. I've watched things change shape. So I know that God does miracles. And I'm telling you, the biggest obstacle to me getting free of my fear of rejection and abandonment were those miracles. Because here was my expectation when it came to the hard work of transformation. I thought God was just going to zap it away. But how are we transformed? By the renewing of the mind. And that is something that takes work. Um, so here's the tool I'm giving you as you enter into the new year. How many of you know that you have a stronghold in the mind? Okay, you're already a few steps ahead. It's on a conscious level for you. Look, the, one of the primary ways that God exposes these strongholds to us is we keep trying this same thing over and over again, over and, over again and we keep failing at it. And the, the good news is, God just keeps letting us take that test. Do you know why? Because he actually believes you're capable of passing it. Because he's given us everything we need to overcome whatever that test is and to pass it. Otherwise, if you weren't capable of passing, he wouldn't let you keep taking that test. No teacher gives somebody a test with the expectation and hope that they fail. Would that be a good teacher? So God, lets, he would let me sabotage relationship after relationship after relationship because he actually believed I was capable of overcoming my own fear of rejection and abandonment. Now, your, your issue, your stronghold of the mind may be completely different than mine. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, here's the tools. Here's how this starts. It starts with changing our thought life. We have to replace whatever the lie is with the truth. Now, maybe your, your issue is a fear of finances. You have plenty of money in the bank, but that doesn't change the fact that you're still afraid of not having enough. I know this. I had a buddy of mine has an inheritance that's multi-millions, but constantly afraid that he won't have enough for he and his family. Now, tell me if that makes sense, that you would have multi-millions, multi but you're still constantly afraid that you don't have enough, which tells you that having money does not de determine security. So he had to start replacing that fear of not having enough with the truth that God doesn't allow the righteous to go hungry. Now, my, my biggest problem was that I wasn't always aware of what I was thinking. Here's how you can become aware of what you're thinking. It's, and then, like, men, hey, hey, men, raise your hand in the room, because I'm about to tell you something you're not going to want to hear. It starts with becoming aware of what you're feeling. 
catching this? And that means the other feelings that men supposedly don't have, like this one, sadness. Or this one, fear. Like for men, the only time it's okay for you to feel sad is when your dog dies. See, on top of feeling sadness or fear, we also have something else that we don't talk about, and it's called shame. And many times we feel ashamed for having other feelings. Let me tell you the difference between sadness and shame. Sadness is, is feeling sad over something that's, that you've done. Shame is feeling sadness over who you are. Shame is not supposed to be part of the human experience. We were never supposed to experience shame. And I'm telling you, because of what Jesus has done on a cross, you do not have to feel shame ever again. Because there is nothing you can do at this point that can change who you are. Because Jesus has already told you who you are and what you're worth. Through his death and resurrection, through the shedding of his blood, you are something amazing, despite how you may think of yourself. Let me just say this. Everybody say the words, I'm awesome. To the degree that that doesn't feel true is the degree to which you don't believe what Christ has done on the cross for you. Don't I need to say that again? The degree to which you do not feel like that statement is true for you is the degree to which you still don't believe that Jesus' blood was enough for you. Okay. I'm telling you this. Like, I, people, I mean, when I would sabotage a relationship, everybody around me would look at me and go, man, that guy knows the scriptures. What the heck is his problem? I mean, he, he can quote them back to me. What's his problem? How is he actually like, feels like he's just making all kinds of dumb decisions out of this fear of rejection and abandonment? What's his issue? You know what my issue was? I knew a lot of scripture. It was lodged all the way up here in this toilet called my brain. And where it would just get flushed right out. Problem with me was I knew it up here in my head, but it had never transformed how I actually felt about myself. See, it's one thing to, to know it up here. It's another thing to know it here. I remember I used to, I used to hate that passage, and I think many of you have heard me say this before. Uh, in the midst of my suffering, someone would go, well, the truth will set you free, brother. And I just want to look at him and spit. I mean, the truth will set you free. The problem is, is that I never realized the verse right before it where it says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, knowing the truth is a Semitic term. The first time it's used in the scripture is when it talks about Adam and Eve getting together. It says, then Adam knew Eve. Now, that kind of knowing is not like you're, you know, lodged up in your head. It's an experiential kind of knowledge. So when he says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, that means you're having an encounter with that truth. Which is why when... when uh, God tells Joshua when he goes into the promised land, do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it. Okay. Meditating on something is very different than just thinking about it. Meditating means like this. Like, you want to know what your worth is? I want you to do this. Next time you read the scripture where it talks about Jesus going up the hill to Golgotha, as he's carrying the cross with him, I want you to envision it in your mind. To actually see him carry it up with your imagination. That's what it means to meditate on it. Because then you're having an experience with the cost that Jesus was bearing for you. Suddenly you know that you're worth every bit of that exchange. Every, every bloody step that he took. That's what you were worth. And far more. Because it didn't stop with Golgotha. He then hung on a cross. Every drop of blood that came down, every sigh of breath he had to take, you meditate on that very thing because then suddenly you know what your worth is. 
And this is what it means to meditate on the truth. It means it going from a place that's up here as just some theory that you have in your head to it actually feeling true. Remember when I said, everybody say the words, I'm awesome. It's supposed to feel true. Do you know why? Because it is. And who's right, you or God? Who's the final authority? What you believe about yourself or what God believes about you? See, does God ever believe anything that's wrong? Bill Johnson used to say this. I think this is a great little catchphrase. I cannot afford to have a thought in my head that does not exist in God's. Catching this? Ah, This is a whole lot. (laughs) Um, When it comes to uh, evil spirits and doing spiritual warfare and all that stuff, I always tell people there's two ways to take care of a demon. There's power present, and you command the thing to leave. Problem is, there's not always power present. Here's the other way to deal with demons. You starve them out. Now, for me, when I tell you that I struggled with fear of rejection and abandonment, I wasn't just struggling with something in my head. I was struggling with an evil spirit. I remember my roommate, after I'd sabotaged a relationship, he was so concerned about me, he was hiding the knives. Literally, he hid the knives. He was afraid of what I might do to myself. And he was trying to talk truth to me uh, when I just was feeling miserable, full of self-pity, self-hatred, lacking self-worth. And uh, he woke up in the middle of the night, and he saw this black smoke creature with these red eyes, and it was choking him. And he rebukes it, wakes, you know, goes back to bed, tells me about it the next day. Now, at this point in my walk with the Lord, I, I knew a little bit about evil spirits. And so when he tells me this, I knew exactly what that was. That's the spirit of rejection and abandonment. That thing has been with me my whole life, ever since I was a child. He, um, I went through the next six months to a year of going through this process where I would start asking myself this question, hey, when you were feeling that panic, when you were feeling that fear, what were you thinking about? This is how, I, how I, this fortress went from a place of being invisible to me being actually conscious of it. By asking myself the question, what was I thinking about when I was feeling that feeling? Suddenly I became aware of how negative my thinking was. These were the thoughts. You are not worthy of love, right? She doesn't love me anymore. You're not worthy of love. That thought needs to be destroyed and replaced with truth. The truth is, I'm worth the blood of Jesus. The truth is, I'll never be alone because he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. So I used to begin this every morning. I would begin meditating and praying, right? I'd say, again, it's a meditation on the law, right? Not just a a passing thought. You have to meditate on it, right? So I use my meditations as praise. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd say these words. Jesus, I thank you that you love me just the way I am. I thank you that you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. I'll never be alone. And I would just give him these, these prayers of thanksgiving until I actually felt something in my heart. Until I felt the weight of those words to where they went from being a place up here in my head to an experiential truth, an experience with truth. That would be my morning meditation. Then throughout the day, whenever a negative feeling would come in, I'd go, what was I thinking about? Now at first, my negative emotions, they used to feel like a tsunami. You know what that feels like? Okay, maybe I should quit asking the men. Ladies, you know what that feels like? A tsunami of emotion. It's like suddenly you feel this overwhelming amount of sadness, an overwhelming amount of fear, an overwhelming amount of shame. And that overwhelming thing just seems to pummel you into the ground. Now, for me, whenever I felt that rejection come on, it was like that. It was like a tsunami of emotion. It would just pummel me to where I couldn't think clearly. So I had to, I had to teach myself to do this thing. I call it riding the wave. Now, you guys know this. Every wave of emotion eventually dies down, Right? We all know that you may feel something for a while, but eventually, no matter how strong that feeling is, it eventually subsides. And so I I, I was determined in that moment not to act, 
Don't do anything. Just wait until the feeling's gone. Then after the feeling had sort of subsided, then I'd ask myself that question. What was I thinking about? Sooner or later, I, I got so accustomed to, to figuring out what I was thinking about that I was actually able to start taking it captive earlier and earlier to where instead of it becoming a tsunami of emotion, it was just a wave and then just a feeling. You know what one of the, uh, one of the names for the enemy is? Beazable. Do you know what it means? Lord of the flies. When an evil thought, a negative thought comes your way, here's what it's supposed to feel like. Like a fly that comes and buzzes in your head for a second, but you're able to get rid of it. Now when I feel that fear of abandonment, because it's not like it doesn't come anymore. It's just when it comes, it doesn't feel like a tsunami of emotion. It just feels like a fly. Get out of here. And it doesn't have the same impact or hold on my heart. Now back to that evil spirit. I spent the next six months to a year going through this process of changing the way I thought about myself. Now, and let me just say this. Every lie, every stronghold of the mind, it's going to have one of three things. It's either a negative thought, something you believe about yourself, something you believe about God, or something you believe about the world around you. That's the root of every evil thought. Something you believe about yourself, something you believe about God, or something you believe about the world, world around you. Um, a year to the date that that evil spirit showed up to my friend and started choking him, I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw it in my room. It was this black smoke thing with red eyes, and I remember waking up in my bedroom and I saw this thing. It was in the corner of the room. My room was freezing cold. I saw it dart from one end of the room to the other, like in an instant. Just, and I'm looking at it. Now, I am feeling terrified, entirely locked up. I cannot even say a word. My mouth is, is just stopped, paralyzed, gripped with fear. And here's the thoughts that play out in my head. I remember this feeling. I remember feeling this terrified but this feeling will subside like every wave. So here's what I determined to do in the moment. I'm seeing an evil spirit. Now, how many of you know seeing evil spirits is a bit terrifying? How many of you like to wake up to see that in your room? None of us. No one likes to see an intruder in their house. So I'm feeling these emotions. I'm gripped by these emotions. But in my head, I'm going, thank you, Jesus, that you love me just the way I am. Thank you that you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. You see, I'd grown so accustomed to meditating on truth that I had it available to me when I needed it. Eventually, the thing leaves. My mouth unlocks. And I just praise God with those prayers of thanksgiving until the feelings changed in my heart. Next week, I was asking the Lord about it. I was saying, God, how come I saw this thing for the first time tonight? It's probably been with me my whole life, but how come tonight I actually saw it? Do you know what he said to me? Because you no longer think it's just you. See, here's the problem with evil spirits that we've lived with our whole life. We think that those thoughts that come into our head are just us. Not every thought you think came from you. There is an evil in this world, and its design, design is to take you out. And it starts by trying to corrupt the way you think about yourself, about God, and about the world around you. And if you can take those thoughts captive and submit them to the knowledge of Christ, if you can raise up the knowledge of God above that thing, you will be successful. Think of it this way. I love, I love this thinking. Uh, Christians have this tendency to train for battle by fighting in a battle. Do you know how, like, how dumb that decision is? How many of you would show up to war having the only training which is fighting in the war? That seems like you're going to get pummeled, doesn't it? Nobody shows up to battle with their only training being fighting in that battle. Okay, you want to fight a battle, a spiritual war, 
It starts by training now. Here's your training. Meditate on truth. Let 2019 begin the year where you literally meditate on the truth that you need for your life to be transformed. Now, you have a stronghold of the mind. Raise your hand if you said, I know I have a stronghold of the mind that needs to be torn down. What is the truth about that situation? Now, here's the difficult thing about truth. Sometimes we need friends to help us realize what that truth is because we don't feel like that truth is true. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, I didn't really feel, like when I would say the words, um, you were worth loving, I didn't feel like that was true. See, that felt like a foreign thought to me. That felt like I was being dishonest with myself. A lot of truth feels that way when we have a stronghold. feels like you're being dishonest. I remember the first time I started praying for the sick, I always thought, well, it's so dumb. Why do you have to put your hand on them? Why can't you just pray, right? Because that's what the scriptures teach, you know? In his hands are rays of light. There's powers hidden. Jesus would lay hands on them and see them healed. And so for me, I, I don't question that now. I now believe it because my experience with truth has resulted in a lot of people getting healed. So you have to begin practicing whatever that is, that meditation is. So what is the truth you need to overcome the stronghold in your mind? The other thing is, start journaling. Ask yourself the question, just at the end of every night, just take 20 minutes, write in the journal, when did I feel something negative? When did I feel something negative? Did I feel sad? Did I feel shame? Did I feel guilt? Did I feel fear? Just write down the word and then ask yourself that question. What was I thinking about when I was feeling that feeling? Because when you see your thought and it's written on a piece of paper, in other words, it's outside of yourself, you'll begin to see that thought as the enemy. And then ask yourself the question, what does that say about me? What does that say about God? What does it say about the world around us? And there you will find that stronghold. As soon as you discover the stronghold, counteract it with truth. That's your new meditation in the mornings. Sound good? How do you want to do this for 2019? Try this out. Just literally try this out. Give yourself over for the next 30 to 45 days of practicing meditating on the truth you need every morning and then practicing uh, identifying the negative beliefs you have at night. Take 20 minutes. What was I feeling that was negative? What was I thinking about when I was feeling those feelings? What's the truth? See what happens. Be transformed.